you'd please turn in your Bible to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1. Luke, chapter 1. And again, would encourage you to um, have a Bible open. If you're visiting with us today, then bring a Bible with you or don't have one on your phone. I certainly would encourage you to take the Pew Bible. Um, you can find the passage on page 856. We'll look at that passage in a moment. Um, I do. I didn't. I don't think I've said this the last couple of weeks. But I do want to thank those of our families who are leading us in our Advent devotions at the beginning of service. Um, I really appreciate um, what you've shared. I, every year, I do appreciate kind of how the body of Christ is able to speak God's word to us and uh, share about the theme for that particular week. And so, it's been especially. Um, encouraging to me this year, um, Howard and Enola and Sheldon and Allison and now um, Philip and Allison and, and Ruby sharing um, on our themes. And as we have already uh, heard and discovered, the theme for this week is joy. And as Bruce mentioned in um, leading uh, the worship this morning the, uh, uh, before one of the songs, uh, this is sometimes called Gaudate Sunday. It's the third Sunday of Advent. The word Gaudate just simply means rejoice. It is a, an imperative. It's a command. We are to rejoice. Um, in fact, I would encourage you to take a moment sometime this afternoon or um, this week sometime and look at whatever you use for, your, for music on your phone or your app or whatever. Uh, search for the song Gaudate. Um, I might have a longer name, Gaudate Christus Esnaltus. Um, it's a very, uh, it's in Latin, so unless you've studied Latin, you're not going to really appreciate maybe the lyrics, but it is like, it's a really cool, and it really gets you going, it really gets that, that joy in there. So um, do yourself a favor and, and look for that song. But it's appropriate. Joy is one of the themes of Advent because Advent is a time for rejoicing. The theme of Advent, the message of Advent is a message of good news for all people that God's salvation has come. But for many people, the Christmas season is filled not with joy, but with sorrow and sadness. In fact, Christmas, the Christmas time, can heighten the pain of broken relationships, or it can compound the grief of, of a lost loved one, or perhaps it can ratchet up the despair that we might feel over having limited resources in our lives. But these very experiences... The sadness, the sorrow, the, the pain, the brokenness helps us to understand the good news of Advent. It helps us to understand why Advent is a season for rejoicing. The scripture records that the first Advent was God's antidote to sadness and despair. God was working in that season before the birth of Christ. He was working as those things were coming to fruition. He was working in the midst of the doom and the, and the gloom of the time to repair all that had gone wrong in the world. He was scattering the sadness. He was scattering the sorrow. He was bringing in light. He was bringing in a new day. He was fixing, he was repairing all that had, been, had gone wrong going all the way back to the very beginning of creation, the fall of man. So God's working in this time was a reason for rejoicing. A new day had come. And our passage today perfectly reflects that theme of joy. We're going to be looking at chapter 1, verses 57 to 80. It's Zechariah, the chief, one of the, one of the Jewish priests who was serving in the temple. The, the Lord had, had come to him and had given him, the, the angel of the Lord had come to him and given him a word, a word of, of, of great news. 
And here we see that, that in this passage that Zechariah is rejoicing. He is praising the Lord because God is unveiling his work of salvation right before his very eyes. So let's look at our passage. Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 57. Now the time for Elizabeth to give birth, now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child. And they would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by, that, by this name. And they made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was open and his tongue loosed and he spoke, Blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid, a, laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people, and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our fathers, to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. You can see from the passage just the way it's kind of broken down for us, how it's presented in the scripture, that there are sort of two nice distinct units. Uh, the first is a narrative, a story, verses 57 to 66. And the second, a poetic section that looks very much like a psalm in verses 67 to 79. And what I want to do is kind of go through each of those individually. Let's look first at the narrative. These, Luke provides for us a narrative of the events surrounding the birth of John the Baptist. And what we see here in verses 57 to 66 is a continuation, really the conclusion of the story that began at the very beginning of the gospel. Luke is finishing what he has been trying to tell us from the very start of the gospel. As a reminder, remember that in the previous nine months, nine months or maybe even before that, before John's birth, the angel Gabriel had appeared to Zechariah while he was performing his regularly scheduled priestly duties in the temple. And Gabriel had announced to Zechariah that his wife Elizabeth would miraculously conceive a son. And I say miraculously because remember that she was barren and well beyond the age of childbearing. It was practically impossible for her to have a child. And yet, Gabriel, the angel, revealed to Zechariah that Elizabeth would have a son and that this son would fulfill the promise that God had made to Israel through the prophets long before. Specifically, that promise that God would send a messenger both to prepare the way for the Messiah, but also to prepare the people for the Messiah's coming and to prepare them especially for the salvation that Messiah would bring when he came into the world. But you'll remember that Zechariah did not believe this word from the Lord, 
And so for his unbelief, God closed Zechariah's mouth. He made Zechariah mute until the day of John's birth and circumcision. And now we are nine months or perhaps even a little bit longer, depending upon when the angel actually appeared to Zechariah. Uh, we have now come nine or so months and Elizabeth's pregnancy has come to conclusion and she gives birth to her son, John, in verse 57. In accordance with the Old Testament law, Zechariah and Elizabeth bring John to the temple for his circumcision uh, eight days after his birth. And according to Jewish custom, the son would have been named at the time of the circumcision. So the crowds that are gathered there, especially their neighbors and relatives who have come with them to celebrate this occasion, to mark this occasion, they assume that this child is going to take on his father's name, a family name, maybe the name of his father or his grandfather, someone that was a family name. Just like for many of you, maybe you have a, your, I have my father's first name, James. Some of you may have uh, names in your name from a, of a parent or, or a grandparent. There's a family name. And that's important for, for family culture. It was sort of a custom of the time to name a child on the basis of a family name. But you'll see here that in verse 60, Elizabeth interjects and she says, no, we're going to name the child John. His name is John in accordance with the instructions that the angel had given to Zechariah earlier in chapter 1. Well, you see that the crowd kind of balks at Elizabeth's direction there and so they turn to the baby's father they turn to Zechariah but Zechariah can't say anything because he is still mute and so he asks for a writing tablet and he writes on that tablet confirming what Elizabeth has said his name is John and at that very moment Luke says immediately in verse 64 the Lord opens Zechariah's mouth his muteness is taken from him and he begins to speak, and the words that come forth from his mouth are words of praise to God, which I believe are transcribed for us in verses 68 to 79. I believe that that's what Zechariah said in the moment when he blessed the Lord. At the same time that he is praising the Lord, we see that the neighbors and relatives, the crowd that had assembled there, that they marveled. They were amazed over the things that they had just witnessed. They recognized they had seen something supernatural, that a mute man, someone whose, whose voice had been taken from him, is now able all of a sudden, miraculously, to speak. And so they fear God. They have a, a fear of God. There is a reverence for God, an awesome reflection upon who God is. They see his majesty. They see his greatness in the work that he has done. And they are overwhelmed by that working. They are amazed. They are filled with wonder. And word begins to spread throughout the hill country of Judea. They, the people are amazed. This amazement pours forth that wherever this testimony is given, wherever this word goes, people are amazed. They are held in awe at what God has done. The people were convinced that the Lord's presence and power were with this baby. They were with John. And even if they weren't clear on the nature of his mission, if they weren't clear on the nature of, 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 this, of the place of this child in God's sovereign plans for them, they still rejoice. Their amazement and their rejoicing are tied together. And so they are able to rejoice even more than they are able to understand. This rejoicing comes because God is at work. He is moving. He is doing something in the life of this child. And this working will ultimately be for them. And before we transition to Zechariah's song, I want to point out a, a few key truths, three key truths from this passage I think it's important to, to point out. And the first is, is a theme that's been running throughout these messages, throughout the, the text here in Luke chapter 1, and that is that God is fulfilling His promises. God fulfills His promises. 
with the birth of John, God fulfills his first promise in the New Testament era. What Gabriel announced to Zechariah has actually now come to fulfillment. And John's birth is the sign that God was now acting on those promises that he made to his people centuries before. Promises to save them. Now, from our vantage point today, we're sitting after all of these things have occurred. We understand that God has brought his work of salvation to conclusion in the person of Jesus. Jesus would be born. He would grow up. He would live and minister. He would do God's will according to God's design. He would die on the cross. He would be raised from the dead. and He would ascend to heaven. All that God intended to do to save his people, he did in Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promises of salvation. But even though this work is done, more remains, right? We are still expectant. We are still hopeful. We still cling to the promises of God. We have not yet entered fully into all that God has promised or or all that we hope for. There are things that we right now still are hoping for that have not yet come to pass, have not yet come to conclusion. But ought we to doubt that God will fulfill his promises? Absolutely not. Luke's record of these things bolster our hope. These things that Luke has written that have actually happened and taken place in history give us certainty and assurance that those outstanding promises that have yet to be fulfilled will be fulfilled. God will do them. He will bring them to pass. He has fulfilled His promises, and He will yet fulfill His promises that still remain, all of them. And so we must be reminding ourselves of the promises of God. One of the things that stirs up that joy in us are the promises of God, the things that we are still hoping for and longing for, the things that have not yet come to pass, the things in which are still future. God is still pressing history forward until those things come to conclusion. And so we must cling to those promises. We must trust those promises. As you're reading Scripture, write down the promises of God. Cling to them. Hope for them. Trust that God will fulfill them and then walk faithfully according to those promises. We've seen that in Zachariah's case and Elizabeth's case. Zachariah, not so much. He did not believe, and so God muted him. Elizabeth, much more so. Trusting in God, proclaiming her faith in God, rejoicing in what God was doing, because she understood that God would fulfill his promises. Second key truth in the narrative is that God shows grace to his people. God shows grace to his people. Luke does not draw out the significance of the names of the people as he retells the story, but I do think it's appropriate to highlight. For example, the name Zechariah means Yahweh remembers. And while it is a common Hebrew name, it's providentially appropriate that God would give Zechariah John the Baptist as his son. Because John the Baptist is the sign that God had indeed remembered his promises. Remember that God promised to save his people. And the first step in fulfilling those promises is to send John the Baptist as the one who would make ready the way of the Lord. He was the one who had come to precede the Messiah and to prepare the people for Messiah's coming. 
God had remembered his promises. And so he gives Zechariah this son as a visible demonstration that God was remembering. But Zechariah's son would not take his name, right? His name, the angel told Zechariah, would be John. He is named John. And the name John, or in Hebrew, Yochanan, means that Yahweh is gracious. In remembering his promises, God is acting out of his grace. God had determined to save his people long before because he is gracious. He begins to show that grace with the birth of John. Because again, John initiates that cascade of events that will lead to the birth and life and ultimately death and resurrection of Jesus. Those things that are the cornerstone, the centerpiece of our salvation. So salvation is all of grace. And the grace of God here blooms into full flower with these events, especially with the birth of Jesus. For it would be Jesus who would save his people from their sins. God sent his son, Jesus, graciously into the world. Coming, Jesus' is coming is an act of God's grace. And in redeeming us, we receive the fullness of God's grace. Jesus is the sign of God's grace. If you ever wonder if God is being gracious to you, if God is showing you grace, just look at Jesus. Jesus is the sign of God's grace to us. And so if we are trusting in Christ, we have received the fullness of His grace. We've received grace upon grace. We can testify to that. That from the time that we are saved all the way to the very end of the age, we are recipients of God's grace. God shows grace to his people. We also see in this passage that God's salvation produces joy and amazement. Notice that Elizabeth's neighbors and relatives here rejoice at the birth of John. When, when she gives birth, they rejoice. And certainly they're rejoicing over the fact that a child is born, right? When you hear that a child is born... There is joy there because of a, of a new life, of a new birth. It's the thing you've been expecting for nine months has now come to fruition. But even more so, their joy comes because Elizabeth was barren. She was beyond the age of childbearing, right? She had experienced the, the dishonor, the curse, the stigma of childlessness. And now God had replaced that with the blessing and honor of a child. But Luke's use of joy here and throughout the gospel, points to a joy beyond just the joy of the birth of John the Baptist. Their joy, and again, I don't think they fully realize it yet, their joy stems from the fact that John's birth indicates, it implies that God's salvation is near, that his plan has been put into motion. That was the thing longed for. That was the thing hoped for. Remember that they've been languishing under Roman rule now, for a hundred years or more. They have been anticipating, they've been hoping for their Messiah Redeemer to come and to throw off that yoke and to usher in the new day of God's salvation, the new day of God's blessing. But even more than that, they were languishing under their sins. They were suffering under the prospects of God's righteous judgment. They were suffering under the fact that they were utterly cut off from God as His people. And now with John's birth, God's salvation has come near. And that salvation would bring them joy. Though it seems they don't necessarily understand in the moment here what all this means, they understand that this child is, 
significant in some way. They say that in verse 66. What then will this child be for the hand of the Lord was with him? They don't understand what all of this means. But they understand that this child indicates something new that God is doing. It's a new day in his, on his calendar. It's a new day in his sovereign work. It is the day of God's salvation. But their amazement here with John would pale in comparison when they see the fullness of his salvation in Jesus. And that amazement will be mingled with joy as we see in verses 55, 57 to 66. Their amazement is tied together with joy. They can be at one sense wonder, they can be wonder, they can be amazed, maybe even a little frightful, but at the same time joyful, understanding that this is something new that God is doing. When is the last time that you have been overwhelmed with joy and amazement at God's salvation? Bruce mentioned this morning about stirring up that gift. How do we stir it up? How is it stirred up? How do we how do we bask in the joy of what this season means? It is to look carefully again at the message of God's salvation. It is to see what God has truly done in Jesus. The Christmas message is a message of joy. As Bruce said, when we say Merry Christmas, the word Merry means happy, joyful. We wish people a Merry Christmas. We are wishing them that they would understand the joy of what this season brings. The announcement of Jesus coming into the world, preceded by the announcement and birth of John, is a message of good news. And again, in this season where Christmas may not be a happy time for one reason or another, we can point people to God's salvation. That is the remedy for our sadness. We find joy in what God has done. Maybe you're one of those people who are struggling over Christmas and over the idea that we should be joyful, that this is the most wonderful time of the year. You're plagued with sorrow. You're overcome with despair. There's a, there's a sadness that reigns in you and over you. Let me encourage you to meditate upon the gospel. Because what God has given for your sadness, what he has given you for your despair, what he has given to scatter the darkness is the message of salvation found in his son. Jesus is God's remedy for all of those things. He is the one who brings us joy. He takes care of the sin problem. He takes care of the curse from the fall. And so we ought to be like Zechariah and Elizabeth's neighbors and relatives when they rejoice at the birth of John, understanding that these things are pointing to the fullness of our joy when we see it come into full bloom in the life and ministry of Jesus. So Zechariah expresses his own joy and amazement at God's work in the birth of John the Baptist immediately after he regained his speech. As you see in verse 64, it says immediately after he gave those who were performing the circumcision his, his word that John's, that the baby's name would be John, it says that he immediately, immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue was loosed and he spoke blessing God. I think that what we have recorded, that blessing, that word of praise, is Zechariah's song in verses 67 to 79. And I believe that that's the, con- the content that's recorded there is what he said, is what he sang in the moment when God loosened his mouth. So let's look at that then, the, the song. And I can't go through everything in there, obviously, but, but let's pick out some of the, the, key, the key points here. We see that Zechariah, like Mary offers his own song of praise. We saw that last week, Mary's 
a song of praise in verses 46 to 55. We refer to that as the Magnificat because it's the first word of her song in the Latin translation. Uh, Zachariah's song is sometimes referred to as the Benedictus, just as the, the first word, the first, uh, the, the first word in the Latin translation, blessed. Benedictus, blessed. The word blessed in Greek just means to praise. And here we see that Zechariah is praising God. Verse 64, he was blessing God. He was praising God. In verse 68, he says, Blessed be the Lord God. Praise be to the Lord God of Israel. So Zechariah's song, like Mary's, is a song of praise. It is a hymn of praise, very much like the, uh, in the pattern of the Old Testament Psalms. And through his praise, he expresses his joy and his amazement at the work of God. What is the reason for Zechariah's praise. If we were to distill what Zechariah says in his song, we can come down and we see that the main theme of the song, the main reason for his praise, is the work of salvation that God is bringing to his people. God is saving his, pe- his people. And Zechariah celebrates that. That salvation is good news. It is worthy of praise. It is what brings him joy. And we see this idea of, of salvation. Zechariah speaks of salvation here in several different very illustrative words and images. Let me point out a few of those. First of all, the word salvation itself, or the word, the word save. We, we see it in verse 69, verse 71, and verse 77. He uses the words to save, or the word salvation. It's a very picturesque word. It means literally to save from danger. But we might also use the word rescue. We think of rescue uh, in the terms of like a burning house, there's a house on fire and a, a firefighter goes into the house and, and rescues those who are, in, who are trapped by the flames or, or someone out in the middle of the ocean where there's no land around and all of a sudden a boat kind of comes and throws over a life preserver and saves and they're rescuing them from the danger that is present. The fact that God was acting to save his people indicates that they were in danger and we see that Zechariah says as much in verse 71. He says that, that, that he's praising the Lord that, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Israel was in danger from her enemies. They were suffering under the oppression of the Romans. They were suffering the oppression even of the fall itself. They were languishing. They were in misery. In light of this danger, God promised to rescue his people. He was going to pull them up out from that danger. Again, like the firefighter going into the house to rescue uh, the child who is trapped by the flames or, or someone lost at sea who has no, no place of salvation except that someone comes alongside and throws them the life preserver. God promised to save his people from danger. He promised to rescue them so that they would no longer be tormented. He promised that as part of his salvation to bring them into a a blessed and fruitful life under God's loving and covenantal care. But the danger that Israel faced here is far beyond just the foreign oppression. It's far beyond their political circumstances or their socioeconomic condition. The real danger that Israel faces is from God himself. Although they are his people, their faithlessness has brought the righteous judgment of God against them. The prophets warned Israel of the terrible nature of that judgment, that God would pour out his wrath against them. In fact, no one could save Israel from God's judgment except God himself. So if Israel was going to be saved, who was going to save them? It had to be God. God alone could save Israel. God alone would be the only one who could save Israel. 
Zechariah here indicates that this is the root of their problem. Israel might think that their problem is socioeconomic, it might be political, but Zechariah points to this inner work, this spiritual problem that they face. And God saves them. He deals with this root problem by forgiving them of their sins. Notice in verse 77 that Zechariah connects salvation with the forgiveness of sins. Zechariah says that the people would be saved by the forgiveness of their sins. God saves his people from his judgment by forgiving them of their sins. That was the problem. They were under the judgment of God, so by God forgiving them of their sins, they were spared of God's judgment. And so by God's forgiveness, Israel is saved. Israel is rescued from the judgment of God. They are brought back into the safety and blessing of his covenant care. We see also that Zechariah speaks of God's salvation in terms of the word visit in verse 68. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited his people. When God saves his people, he comes to visit them. When he comes to visit them, he comes to save them. Again, if you go back to the Old Testament, do a word study on the word visit, we see that it's used oftentimes in a not very good way. When God comes to visit, it's not a very good day. God comes, when God comes to visit, it's judgment, it's wrath. Why? Because the people are in their sins. God comes to bring his judgment. And so the day of God's visitation, the day of his wrath and destruction. Remember in seminary, we studied the book of, I think it was Zephaniah. And the professor was just like really bringing this point home hard. Judgment, wrath, fire. In fact, he says, if I call you in the middle of the night, 3 o'clock in the morning, and I say, Zephaniah, your response is, judgment, wrath, fire. Because that's what God brings on the day of his visitation. But, for God's people, the day of God's visitation is good because it is a day of salvation. God will not subject his people to his wrath, or to fire, or to judgment, but he will save them. So for God's people, the day of God's visitation is a good thing. In fact, I really haven't pointed this out, but throughout chapter 1, we see this word visit crop up several times. It's a very hopeful sign that this is the day that God comes to be among his people, to visit them, to rescue them. It is a day of glory and blessing for them. The day of visitation is a day when God destroys his enemies. And he rescues his people and brings them back into joyful covenant relationship together. God's salvation is also expressed in the word redeemed. We see that in verse 68. Blessed be the God of Israel, for he has redeemed his people. So when God saves his people, he redeems them. The word redeem means to buy back. It pictures a situation where God's people are in slavery or oppression. They're under another master. And so God intervenes in a powerful way to break the power of that oppression and bring his people rightfully back under his rule. He buys them back for himself. They were his to begin with. They somehow did not become his. And now he intervenes in a very powerful way to bring them back to him, to call them back, to bring them back as his people. From a biblical point of view, God created human beings to be his people. But when they sinned against him, they came under the rule of a different master. The Bible speaks of that master as being self, it speaks of it being sin, it speaks of it being Satan himself. But God's people are his people, and so he redeems them. He buys them back through the death of his son. 
so that they are truly His people, dwelling under His authority and flourishing under His care. God's salvation is also expressed in the image of the horn of salvation, verse 69. Blessed be the God of Israel, for He has raised up for us a horn of salvation for us in the house of His servant David. In the Old Testament, the, the, the horn was a symbol of authority and strength. It symbolized a powerful and sovereign king ruling over his people. Remember again, in ancient Israel, the king was to keep the foreign enemies away. They were the ones who were to protect God's people and, and to, to follow God's law and to create the, the, the kind of kingdom where God's care would flourish among the people. But after the exile, when Israel had no king, the horn came to again symbolize the coming Messiah, whom God would send to break the power of his people's enemies. And this Messiah, as Zechariah says in verse 69, would come from the line of David. He had promised that to David. He had promised it through the prophets throughout Old Testament history. He had promised it to Mary. We saw a couple of weeks ago in chapter 1, verses 26 to 38. So with the birth of John the Baptist, Zechariah sees that God has raised up a horn of salvation. Not because it's in John, but because John prepares the way for this king. The omnipotent and sovereign king with unchallenged authority who would deliver his people from the yoke of their enemies. And so Zechariah here praises God for the work of his salvation. He praises God because God is the one doing the saving. God had saved Israel in times past. Again, read the Old Testament. How Israel had fallen under the judge, under his judgment by the hands of these foreign powers. How God had raised up a king. He had raised up someone to cast off the yoke of that judgment and to restore the kingdom to the rightful Davidic heir. But this time is different. This is the salvation of all salvations. This is God's defining act of salvation is once and for all salvation to rescue his people. That day of salvation has come in the coming of Jesus. And Zechariah's son, John, is the supreme display that God's salvation is near. It is on the doorstep at the threshold. God sent Jesus to rescue his people from their ultimate danger. He came to rescue us from our danger. Our danger is not from Rome or our poverty, or our work situation, or a bad relationship, our danger is brought on by our own sin. God has saved us from that judgment by forgiving us of our sins, by redeeming us from the bondage of sin, by redeeming us from the bondage of Satan, so that we might be His true and faithful covenant people. That we might walk in the beauty and the glory of his salvation. Jesus is the horn of salvation that crushes the power of sin and the devil and establishes his good and right and fruitful reign that usher in for us the blessings of God. It is a new day on God's calendar. And John is the dawn that signals that this new day has come. Like Mary's song, Zechariah too has full confidence in God's salvation, though these things have yet still to happen, though these things are really in the process of happening, they are only just beginning. The rest must be worked out. But do you see how Zechariah speaks of God's salvation? In verses 68 and 69, 
For he has visited his people, he has redeemed his people, he has raised up a horn of salvation for us. He's speaking about these things in the past tense. These things are in the process of happening. They are still yet to happen. But Zechariah speaks as if everything's already been done. Everything has been accomplished. Zechariah understands that what God does, that what God promises, he fulfills, that what God starts, he finishes. This thing that God is doing is as good as done. And so Zechariah praises God that even though this is the beginning, God's work will come to its fulfillment. The one who began the good work we faithful to complete it. Which brings us to the last question, which is, why has God saved us? Why has God saved us? Why would God do this for us? Why would he make us to be his people? Let me point you to verse 74. He says that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve Him without fear in holiness and righteousness before Him all our days. God saved us to serve Him without fear. Now the word serve there is a a very important word. It means to serve. It means to work. To work for. Remember when God created Adam and put him in the garden? He gave him work to do. Adam was to work it and keep it. The word work there is the word serve. Adam was to tend the garden for the glory of God, right? He was to serve God in his work. Later on in the Old Testament, the word serve also means worship. When the, the priests go about serving the Lord in the tabernacle of the temple, they are worshiping the Lord. They are leading the people to worship the Lord. God's people are to be his people. They are to be exclusively devoted to him. We serve God. We do His work. We aim to please Him. We glorify Him by serving Him. We worship Him as we serve Him. God created us to serve Him, right? He created us to be His people living exclusively for His glory. But the fall changed that. Instead of serving God, we now serve ourselves. We reverse God's intentions for our lives. We do disservice to Him, instead serving us and serving our own interests. And so by saving us, God is restoring us to His original purposes for us. By making us His people, He enters into relationship with us, and we humble ourselves, and we serve Him by doing all that He commands us to do, by worshiping Him alone. And notice that Zechariah says that, That service is done in holiness and righteousness. That is, we serve God in a holy way. We serve Him out of a position of holiness that God has transformed us. He has sanctified us. He has made us holy. He has set us apart for Himself. We serve Him in righteousness. We do the right thing because God has given to us the right thing to do. We are set apart for Him. We are set apart for His ways. We devote ourselves to living for Him, to following His plan, to living out His purposes to serving according to His character. We serve God in holiness and righteousness. And notice He also says that we serve Him all of our days. Our commitment to God is a lifelong commitment. It is a wholehearted commitment. We are not called to be a half-hearted, half-stepping people. 
Right? We're to be a people fully devoted to God, devoted for Him, not just in the moment, but for the rest of our lives. And that's important for us to make, that when, when God sent Jesus into the world for our salvation, He intended to save all of us for all of life. God is not interested, interested in half-hearted Christians. The call of Jesus is, come, follow me. Remember those stories where the disciples left what they had and they followed after him. God intends that by receiving his salvation in Jesus that we will serve him alone, without fear, in holiness and righteousness for the rest of our days. And that is the Christmas message, is it not? The gospel message is not simply a message to be restored to a right relationship with God, but is to be restored in the purposes for which we live. That we live for Him. We live for His glory. We follow Him wholeheartedly. We serve Him all of our days. Notice that praising God for His salvation includes praising God that we might be privileged by His mercy to serve Him forever. Do you thank God for the privilege of serving Him? Are you overwhelmed with the fact that God has called you to serve Him alone, exclusively? We're not simply saved from God's judgment. We are saved from that. But God didn't put us kind of on the shelf and say, okay, you guys are good for the rest of time. He called us into His service. He saved us for Himself. He saved us to serve Him. And Zechariah praises God for that. Do you praise God for the privilege of serving Him? Do you praise God for the privilege of being devoted to Him, to having no other master, to looking only unto Him and following Him? In the midst of this Christmas season, are you, like Zechariah, meditating on the glories of God's salvation? Are you considering what the birth of Jesus means with regard to your praise, with regard to your lives? Do you understand more the mercy and grace of God displayed in salvation? Are you praising God for what He has done to save you in Jesus? Christmas is a time for joy. It's a time for praise. Because if Christ had not come, we would still be languishing in the gloom and darkness of our sin. We would still be in the crosshairs of His judgment. But we have been saved. We've been saved to rejoice. We've been saved to praise God for the glorious work of salvation that He has accomplished in us through Christ by His mercy and by His power. And part of that praise means that we surrender ourselves to Him in service. Part of our praise means that we submit our lives to Him and to His authority because our lives are not our own. We must follow Jesus wholeheartedly. So as you meditate on the glories of God's salvation, are you also meditating on how you will serve God? We're at the end of the year, and we're looking ahead to next year already. How will you serve God in the new year? How will you change with regard to your obedience? How, does, how will your life reflect the holiness and righteousness of God that He has brought to you by His salvation? We can't just pay lip service to it. We must reflect a genuinely transformed life. We live according to that genuinely transformed life. So Zechariah here calls us to consider how we might more faithfully serve the Lord. So much more to say, I don't have time to say it. But I love Zechariah's song. And he is an example for us. 
Although he initially doubted, he came to understand what God was doing. He witnessed the beginnings of God's salvation and the birth of his own son. But he looked for the one, not his son, but the one who would come after his son, the one who would save, the Messiah Redeemer, whom his own son would precede and for whom he would prepare the way. And Zechariah praised the Lord for what God was doing to bring his promised salvation to reality in his own time. May we too praise the Lord with our lips and with our lives for the great work of salvation that he has accomplished in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for Zechariah, for his testimony and for his song. And even in the midst of his faithlessness, Father, we can identify because we have been that, at that place where we have doubted, we have not believed you. But your promises don't depend upon us, they depend upon you. And despite Zechariah's unbelief, you finished the job. You did your work. You completed the good work you started in his life and among your people, even now, several millennia later. God, we pray that we might praise you like him that we might be overwhelmed by what you were doing in his life, what you were, what you were doing among his people, what you were doing in that time, Lord, that we would be overwhelmed in the same way, knowing the full, the rest of the story, Lord, that our, lives, that our lips, Lord, would flow forth in praise, that as we have thought more about joy today, Lord, that our joy would translate to praise, and that we would sing for joy as we sang this morning, that we would continue to sing today, that we would sing tomorrow, we'd sing throughout the rest of this Advent season and beyond, that we'd be people of praise because we are overwhelmed by the joy of our salvation. God, we thank you for the privilege of serving you. And we pray, Lord, that we might serve you with fear in holiness and righteousness all of our days. We need your help, Lord. We need your spirit. We need your power. We need your focus. We need your discipline. But our aim, Lord, is to praise you with our lives, to lay down our lives, Lord, as living sacrifices that you might use, Lord, to glorify yourself and to spread abroad even more the news, this joyous news of salvation that is for all people. We thank you, Lord, for your word. Pray that as we now come to the table that we would come in joy and in thanksgiving for what you have done in us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.